This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. The wind blew against the doors of Auburn State Prison on January 25, 1856. Sheets of ice covered the ground outside. Edward Ruloff was now 37 and the academic had spent a decade behind bars for kidnapping his wife. For 10 years, he remained silent about Harriet and their daughter Priscilla. He never revealed a clue to anyone, except journalist Hamilton Freeman. Ham would listen to Edward's story and scribble on his notepad. He would note how the killer's eyes brightened when he talked about languages, and how they darkened when Edward described how the scuts mistreated him. But now, he was set to walk free from prison and start over yet again. He had spent 10 years immersed in research and writing. He did some of his own law work while he was in two. I mean, he played lawyer some of the time. He was a horrible person, but he was very smart. Extremely smart. And he believed that he had made a remarkable discovery in linguistics, though he was still years away from being ready to share his idea with the world. He just needed more time. Edward knew exactly where he wanted to be, a city full of incredible libraries, Manhattan. He planned to leave Auburn State Prison in pristine physical health, and he vowed never to return to upstate New York again. That cold Saturday morning, Edward was elated when he was called into the warden's office. But the Scuts had other plans. They were always thinking, if he gets out again, he'll come back after more of us, maybe, you know? Instead of release papers, the sheriff of Tompkins County held up another arrest warrant. Harriet's family had spent years pressuring the sheriff to stop Edward from going free. 
during his trial 10 years earlier, Edward had some supporters, a few well-respected residents in Ithaca. In private, they agreed that perhaps Priscilla and Harriet weren't actually dead. And so without bodies, should the prosecutor really ruin a man's life? To them, the trial seemed like a sham. A decade later, Harriet and Priscilla were still missing. His supporters were quiet now. All of Tompkins County stood behind the scuts, and so the family suggested a new charge to the district attorney. Edward glared at the sheriff and held out his arms to accept the handcuffs for his journey back to Ithaca. He didn't seem surprised that the scuts were behind it all. When he arrived in Ithaca for his first appearance before the judge, Edward learned that he was being indicted for the murder of his wife. He smiled. He was a good enough attorney to know that he would never face trial for that charge. He composed his own writ of habeas corpus. He argued that there should be no double jeopardy. Did he kidnap his wife or did he kill her, he asked. He said, pick one, because it couldn't be both. If there had been enough evidence to convict him of murdering Harriet, then the jury would have done it 10 years ago. The jurors had even admitted that they wanted to convict him of murder, but couldn't, so they settled for kidnapping. And Edward had done his time. Nonetheless, he was sent back to the jail in Ithaca to await more news. In April, the Court of Appeals assigned Judge Ransom Balcom to the case. Edward had no money to hire an attorney, but it's unlikely he would have actually used one anyway. Remember, he was an arrogant man and supremely confident of his own abilities in court. He represented himself, and just as before, he was convincing. In fact, he was so convincing that the district attorney dropped the murder charges. It would be a waste of money to try him again. Edward gloated. His wife's family had failed once again. Of course, this sent the people in Tompkins County into fits. They wanted revenge, and they demanded his life one way or the other. So they stalked the jail where Edward was held. For the second time, they organized a lynch mob. Historian H.W. Brands says that vigilante justice was very common in the 1800s, particularly in rural areas. Mob justice has been a response by people who feel that the legal system does not actually align with justice, that what the law will punish doesn't match what justice and morals ought to punish. It's not simply a matter of small town stuff. Vigilante justice was used in the West as a way to maintain a measure of law before a sheriff's department and a court system could be set up. Lynching was also used to terrorize Black people, especially in the South. New York City newspapers were disgusted by the reaction of people in the countryside. The New York Tribune wrote, The citizens of Tompkins County are threatening to take the law into their own hands. We trust that the scenes which have disgraced some of the Western states within the past few months will not be repeated in New York. The prosecutor felt immense public pressure. He was desperate to keep Edward in jail, so he quickly drew up another murder indictment. This one accused Edward of killing his two-month-old daughter, Priscilla. There was no mention of Harriet in this case to avoid Edward's argument of double jeopardy. 
Craig Scott says that his family refused to allow the prosecutor to walk away from the case. I thought it was pretty amazing that they, they got that indictment. And in reading the trial transcript, they go through all scenarios of how he might have killed her. But the district attorney had to offer the judge a narrative. So the indictment simply described the various methods Edward might have used to murder her. The list was horrible. Police suspected that her father might have kicked her to death, strangled her with a silk handkerchief, or bludgeoned her with a weapon. He also might have poisoned her with arsenic dissolved in milk. Remember, he was a botanical doctor. After all, he had admitted to sedating her so she would stop crying. And then the DA offered a motive, one indicative of the fear generated by Edward Ruloff. The indictment claimed that Edward did not have the fear of God before his eyes. It said he was moved and seduced by the institution of the devil. And that was enough to make just about everyone in Tompkins County eager to send him to the gallows. Historian Esther Crane says they believed that only the noose could save them from evil. Was there a strong opinion on death penalty during this time period? People were for it. Don't forget, you know, I mean, we're still, this is still an age where people get most of their ideas of the world from the Bible. Newspapers across the country declared that he was a beast, an unholy fiend. The Troy Daily Times called him a vampire, and even big city papers agreed. Manhattan's New York Tribune might have been one of the most progressive papers in America, but editors there still subscribed to the belief that a man's looks would always reveal his morals. The paper said, he has by no means a murderer's look about him, yet his development indicates strong animal passions. Edward was a heathen a soulless monster who disavowed God. Historian Gerald Smith explains why people in upstate New York were petrified of him, even as he sat in jail. He broke their innocence. He brought evil. This is the devil incarnate. You know, it's almost a lynch mob mentality. The case was so sensational that it had to be moved so Edward could receive a fair trial. And finally, in October of 1856, he stood up and pleaded not guilty in a courtroom in Tioga County. Edward seemed cold and unconcerned as neighbors and friends walked past, one by one, to offer evidence against him. A friend testified that he was concerned when Edward reacted irrationally about Harriet's cousin, Dr. Henry Bull. Jurors listened to the landlady describe how he tried to poison Harriet in her boarding house. And there was the farmer who helped load the trunk onto the horse and cart. Edward glared at the Scutt family as they sat in the courtroom. Ephraim Scutt described how he found Harriet crying after Edward had hit her. William recounted his brother-in-law's complaints about Dr. Bull. His sister-in-law, Jane Scutt, testified about the time that Edward hit Harriet in the forehead with a pestle, almost killing her. And then, Edward's mother-in-law, Hannah, walked past him. He stared straight ahead as the 60-year-old sat down in the witness chair. She described her daughter's relationship with Edward. I saw that she was unhappy, Hannah said on the stand. Then she described the night William's infant daughter died. As Edward was packing up his medicine bag, she said, he turned to her 
He said that if William's wife died, he might thank himself for it. And we were little aware of the judgments that were coming onto our family. Each of the scuts was convincing and unwavering. I think a family kind of pulls inward on something like that. and It's protective of the ones that are there. Yeah, the memory's still Yeah, the memory's still painful. there. Edward Ruloff sat quietly and listened. Once again, he represented himself, and he refused to offer a defense. He insisted that without a body, there was simply no crime according to the law. And he might have been right. Even now, it's pretty hard to convict someone of murder with no body. There might not be many forensic clues, and most of the time, circumstantial evidence just isn't enough for jurors to convict. Savvy defense attorneys can argue that a missing wife might not be dead. She may have just simply walked away, and that's what Edward argued to his jurors. The people of upstate New York once trusted Edward Ruloff just based on his looks and his charm. But now those same people had an entirely different feeling about him. They could just sense that he was a killer, even though there was little evidence. And so the jury quickly convicted him of murdering his daughter, and he was finally sentenced to death. The Scuts were elated, and it seemed like all of rural New York celebrated. They would finally see him hanged. Edward Ruloff was furious, of course. He immediately appealed the conviction, and he was transferred back to Ithaca. The New York Court of Appeals delayed its decision for months. The convicted killer sat chained to the floor of the jail. Seven locks were fastened to his door. He'll soon be dead, yelled the villagers. They were thrilled to finally see justice served. But of course, Edward Ruloff had yet another devious plan. He might have been handcuffed inside that Ithaca jail in 1856, but he certainly was an idol. He charmed the jailers, and they offered him quite a few privileges. They furnished him with a writing desk, books, paper, and pens, all the things he needed to continue writing his manuscript. And then he was given a unique opportunity, the chance to teach again. Ham Freeman later would be shocked and then kind of puzzled that Edward warmly remembered his time in the Ithaca jail. Before this, only languages seemed to make him cheery. But now Edward beamed as he talked about a young man named Al Jarvis. He told the journalist how he met the 16-year-old student. And they were unusual circumstances. Edward was a killer, the devil to most people in the county. But he was also a brilliant academic who was now available for private tutoring. Strangely, he soon welcomed a string of young students at his cell door, all sent there by their parents. These were the same villagers who had raised a lynch mob earlier in the year, and yet they didn't want to miss an opportunity to have their children instructed by a gifted teacher. H.W. Brands says that absurd decision shows just how important education was becoming in America. By the 1840s, universal public elementary education was fairly well embraced. This always included boys. Sometimes it included girls. Girls needed to learn to read and write, too. Even the deputy sheriff, Jacob Jarvis, encouraged his son to learn from Edward. He was a bright teenager named Al. 
Edward charmed the 16-year-old by giving him the attention he wasn't receiving from his father. For more than six months, he worked with Al from his cell. He taught him to speak German, Latin, and French. The boy began to run errands for him in town, like gathering paper, pens, books, candles. Edward would later tell Ham that the boy had so much potential. Edward said he was then a bright, active boy. The attachment which he began to have for me attracted the attention of his parents, who did not object to our intimacy. Just to clarify, the word intimacy in the 19th century much of the time meant emotional intimacy, not sexual. Jacob Jarvis was also the jailer. His family actually lived in the same building as the jail. So while Edward worked with Al, his mother Jane would stroll around, occasionally smiling sweetly. And Edward flirted back. Now, their attraction was sexual. This, of course, angered her husband. Edward later told Ham that while her husband was a brute, he was kind to Jane and loving. He drew both Al and Jane closer to him. He sometimes beat her and threatened her life, Edward told Ham. She had no love for him. How could she have? Hamilton admired Edward for giving Jane solace, though he realized that the abusive marriage claim might have been false. Regardless, Al Jarvis seemed to appreciate Edward's guidance. But Ephraim Scutt was aghast when he heard that the deputy sheriff's son was spending so much time with the killer. So he warned Jacob Jarvis to keep the boy away from Edward. Craig Scutt hadn't heard that story, and he was pretty surprised when I told him. Really? Ah! Because he knew he'd probably try to manipulate him, which he did. What I think is so interesting about the family is that they kept up with him so well that they were trying, like they always seemed to know where he was. Well, probably part of it was certainly was fear. Fear for, you know, they wanted to know what happened to Harriet, but it was also fear for the rest of them, that what he might do to them, I'm sure, and their loved ones. In the late spring of 1857, the Court of Appeals still had no decision about Edward's murder conviction. He had spent more than seven months in the Ithaca jail working on his manuscript and designing a plan. On May 5th, he listened to the rattle of metal and watched Al remove the bolts from the jail's door. Al leaned over and cut off his shackles. Edward was free once again. Edward told Ham, he had some gold and silver pieces which he had collected. Edward shook Al's hand and walked through the cell door. And then he was gone. All of Ithaca knew by the next morning. Jacob Jarvis, the deputy sheriff, was horrified and then humiliated. He knew exactly who had cut those shackles. Gerald Smith says that his escape showed just how skilled Edward was at manipulation. I mean, the fact that it was he, the son, and the sheriff's wife who sets Ruloff free and helps him escape. And I'm going, see, obviously he charmed me, you know, you know, this is all a mistake. I really shouldn't be here type of thing. And they're going, you know, he's right. The sheriff interviewed dozens of people who might have helped him escape. He offered a $250 reward. They added more locks to the jail, 
clearly a little bit too late. Reporters criticized the deputy sheriff for sloppy security. His officers reported that his wife and son spent far too much time with Edward. Jacob Jarvis ordered them to leave the home. They were ruined. Al Jarvis was fated to become a violent criminal, just like his mentor. No one was safe from Edward Ruloff. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Edward was now an escaped killer, but one with a lot of resources. He rambled around the countryside until the end of the year when his youngest brother, Ruloff, offered to hide him in his large farm in Pennsylvania. The winter was hard. Edward lost two frostbitten toes during his travels. That might seem like an odd detail, but it would become crucial later on. After spending a few tranquil months with his brother, Edward grew restless and a bit irrational. He was a fugitive, a killer with a bounty on his head, and most of the people in Tompkins County were searching for him. His drawing was printed in newspapers across the country. But he still had dreams. He was convinced that he was meant for a life in academia. So he crafted yet another new identity. Convict Edward Ruloff became Professor James Nelson. In early 1858, after nine months on the run, Edward introduced himself to faculty members of Allegheny College. It was a private liberal arts school in Meadville, Pennsylvania. Edward claimed he went to Oxford University in England. He impressed them with his knowledge of classical and modern languages. As Professor Nelson, he began teaching language classes. But Edward needed stability, so he asked for a full-time position. Allegheny College had no permanent openings, but the president was quite impressed by his new hire. He rummaged through his desk for a note. It was a request from the president of another university who was searching for a professor of Greek language. After a short exchange of letters... Edward was offered a faculty position at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It was an incredible opportunity. Edward would finally be surrounded by his intellectual peers. He could teach at a prestigious school and finish his manuscript. And amongst some of the brightest minds in the world, no one would suspect his true identity. 
He lamented to the professors that he was penniless. Remember that academics were poorly paid, so no one seemed surprised. One of the professors even loaned Edward $20 for a railway ticket and food. They were sure he would be well-received in North Carolina. Professors were revered by most Americans, even if they didn't teach their students particularly useful skills in the 1800s. They wouldn't know exactly what you did. If you went to Harvard or Yale, you studied Latin and Greek and the classics and things like that. And maybe you learned a few modern languages, but you didn't learn anything of practical value. But the study of languages was an emerging, exciting field in the 1800s. Cornell University linguistics professor Michael Weiss says that an academic like Edward Ruloff would have been seen as an asset by American universities. This is the early, early days of the American university system. So he does seem to have had some real knowledge and expertise. I think as a knower of Greek, he really seems to have been pretty remarkable. Linguistics was important in the 19th century, and it still is. Well, there are many, many different aspects of linguistics, and some of them are very, very practical. So uh, your Siri depends upon linguistic knowledge and speech recognition, human-computer interactions. These are all very practical aspects of linguistics. In addition to that, right, linguistics is just uh, an important part of understanding human beings. Edward planned to ride the train to North Carolina that day, so he thanked the faculty members and returned to his room to pack. He retrieved his letters, and he glanced over one that had just arrived from Ithaca. It was from Albert Jarvis, the deputy sheriff's son. He read Al's letter carefully. Thanks to Edward, it said, Al and his mother were now destitute. They had nowhere to go. The sweet teenager who had idolized him in jail was now threatening his life. Edward later told Hamilton about the letter. I must send him money or he would cut my throat. Hamilton was shocked. It seemed so out of character for a country boy. But Albert was desperate. What did you do? asked Hamilton. Edward had a choice. He could disappear to North Carolina and continue being Professor James Nelson. Or he could honor his friendship with Albert and help out the mother and son. That night, a burglar broke into a jewelry store near Meadville and stole dozens of watches, gold pens, rings, and breast pens. He was quickly caught with the merchandise, arrested, and identified as Edward Ruloff. Professor James Nelson would never arrive in North Carolina for the fall semester. Edward was sent back to Ithaca in mid-March to the jubilation of the country people in Tompkins County and especially the Scuts. The robbery charges were dropped because his murder charge was pending, but Edward's keen mind would save him once again. The Court of Appeals carefully read the appeal that Edward had written himself. No body meant no crime. It seemed like a simple decision, but it was unprecedented in the United States. And his argument worked. His conviction for killing his daughter was thrown out. The court ordered a third trial. Ithacans were enraged over the four murders, the prison escape, and Edward's flirtation with the deputy sheriff's wife. They had worked themselves into a mob frenzy once again. Violence was inevitable. This was the largest lynch mob by far. In 1859, 
town leaders distributed a handbill entitled, Shall the Murderer Go Unpunished? It ordered Ithacans to meet in the town center at noon. The notice read, It will depend on the action you take that day, whether Edward H. Ruloff walks forth a free man or whether he dies the death he so richly deserves. Psychoanalyst William Winslade says their reaction was understandable, considering everything that Edward had done. People that have no self-restraint are dangerous. He was pretty crazy. There's some people that are so dangerous that, that we should never let them out of prison. I have mixed feelings about the death penalty. I think that there are times when the death penalty seems to be the only realistic solution. Harriet's father, John Scutt, gave an impassioned speech and prayed that Edward would die at the hands of the mob. Another gallows was constructed and another rope was tied. They still had the battering ram from the last mob. 2,000 people crammed into the center of town waiting for an execution. The Scott family was desperate, so they exhumed the body of William's wife, Amelia. They believed there was evidence of poisoning, even though it happened so long ago. In the 1800s, it was still possible to conduct some type of toxicology test. The one done on Amelia Scott was inconclusive. Ephraim Scutt realized that Edward might return to kill more family members. Now, vigilante justice seemed warranted, even necessary. No empathy, no... He, he would do anything. He wanted to destroy that family. Yeah. But the sheriff intervened. He wouldn't allow the mob to kill Edward. He rushed him onto a steamer bound for Auburn State Prison for protection while he waited for a new trial. Soon, the prosecutors would read over the Court of Appeals' decision. It read, Corpus delecti had not been found. That meant that the DA had to prove there had been a crime to begin with. No body, no crime. Just like Edward said, prosecutors were forced to throw out the indictment. He was free. Edward walked out of Auburn State Prison for the last time and he was clutching his precious manuscript. He didn't even serve time for the jail escape, but his legacy, such as it was at the time, was now tainted. Gone were his ambitions of being a respected doctor or lawyer or teacher. Edward could only see a downward spiral into hell. He whispered to Hamilton Freeman, every man is the architect of his own future or ruin. But then his face brightened, and Ham saw the flash of optimism in the killer's eyes. The manuscript just might be his salvation. In January of 1860, Edward Ruloff vanished from Tompkins County, and he reappeared in New York City. In 1860s New York, there was social upheaval as old-world criminal societies rapidly exploited the corrupt politics of the city. Manhattan was enormously crowded with new arrivals ready to find work. Immigrants from around the world packed into tenements, a melting pot of cultures that frequently clashed. Historian Esther Crane says that most of the city was a slum. 
The streets were an absolute nightmare of carriages. There were no street lights like red, green, yellow as we see today. It was terrible. Flies everywhere. Animal carcasses, rats, cats, dogs, and horses too that would just drop dead in the street. And this is in wealthy areas also? This is everywhere. Outsiders described Manhattan as a hellhole. You know, it's the gangs of New York type attitude. It's all these rebel-rousing immigrants coming in, violence, crime. Uh, they walk too fast, they talk too fast, they talk too loud. There's still a lot of local residents that think that New York City should be cut off and floated out to sea because it's not really part of New York State. But as horrible as Manhattan seemed to be, the city offered incredible opportunities. It's the place to be. Everything's happening in New York. There's opportunity. You could be poor, but if you, you know, had a little bit of luck, you could get a job starting uh, shining shoes or selling newspapers. Edward wasn't concerned about the dirty streets or the gangs or even the scuts. He felt like he was right where he belonged, surrounded by libraries and big thinkers, finally. New York City had probably the country's best libraries. They were private at the time. They were collections sponsored by very wealthy men uh, who may have bequeathed it to the public, but there was no New York Public Library at the time. After Edward was released in 1860, the Scuts did the only thing they could do. They searched for Harriet's body. Using nets, workers dragged the southern end of Cayuga Lake, hoping to snare her skeleton, and perhaps Priscilla's too. The enterprise had cost more than $10,000, about $300,000 in today's money. It seemed like an impossible sum, but they felt hopeless. They tried to recover it. They tried dredging the lake for some time. They never found anything. Her family were the ones paying for it, trying to recover her so they could give her a decent burial. This all happened more than 150 years ago, but it's still not easy for the Scuts. Four of their family members had been murdered by one man. And part of the discomfort is that it was a family secret for quite a while, a horror that their relatives kept hidden. Just growing up, what did you what did you hear? What did you know about? Oh, it was you weren't supposed to talk about it. The children weren't supposed to know about it. But they did know about it because there was written material that they would sneak up to the cupola in the house where they were living (laughs) at the time, and they would read it. It might have just been a morbid fascination for children whispering in an attic, but it was a dreadful bit of family history that most of the Scuts wanted to forget. What's the taboo thing about that story in your family, do you think? To save and protect them. From the horrors of the tragedy. I think any tragedy that happens in somebody's lifetime, it does become something they don't like to talk about. Without the bodies of Harriet and Priscilla, Edward Ruloff remained a mystery, a creepy enigma in the archives of Tompkins County. And he was a real threat, ready to return there to exact revenge on the townspeople who tried to doom him. If ever the countryside in New York had a boogeyman, it was Edward Ruloff. Newspapers in London called him a remarkable killer, and they wrote with a hint of admiration. The Times of London said, The action of the people didn't frighten him away, for he has indomitable courage and never knew fear. 
Once again, New York City newspapers scolded the people in the countryside who demanded a lynching. And the papers agreed with Edward Ruloff that a man should not be convicted of murder without proof of a victim. The New York Times declared, better 10 Ruloffs who have made away with their wives by violence should escape than that one Smith should suffer, even if his wife should disappear. Back in New York City, Edward pursued his new life with vigor. And the next eight years proved to be incredibly productive. He worked diligently on his manuscript on the origin of the human language. He was convinced it would make him wealthy and earn him the reputation of a respected academic and gentleman. His work now had an official title, The Method in Formation of Human Language, and it was becoming robust as he spent virtually every waking moment on it. But he needed financing, a way to earn a living, and so he found partners. First, he recruited Al Jarvis, the son of the deputy sheriff from Ithaca. And then in 1861, he met William Dexter in Sing Sing Prison. Edward was serving time for burglary, and of course he was using an alias. Dexter was an illiterate burglar with a desire for higher learning. So when they were both released, Dexter and Edward joined Al Jarvis in New York City. By day, Edward would tutor the young men in modern and ancient languages in classic poetry and writing. By night, they would rob silk merchants in Tompkins County and then later sell their wares. They would specialize in sewing silk, an expensive item that was pretty easy to conceal and difficult to identify. Very few people knew their real names, and each of them landed in jail sporadically. But Edward's focus never wavered from his manuscript, which was nearing completion finally. Life settled into a strange routine as Edward Ruloff wandered through the great libraries of New York City. By July of 1869, he and Al Jarvis had rented a small two-room place above a dry goods store. It was on 3rd Avenue in Irving Plaza, actually just a few blocks from where I used to live. They picked up more members of the criminal ring, an Irish woman who sometimes cooked for them and would sell their stolen silks. Her boyfriend, who was a boxer and a thief, would join Dexter and Jarvis on some of their robberies. And Jane Jarvis, the wife of the deputy sheriff, would sometimes join them. Edward was approaching 50 years old, and he just couldn't keep up. So he no longer joined Jarvis and Dexter as they crisscrossed the New York State countryside, raising funds through robbery. It was easier to stay behind in the apartment, surrounded by more than 400 books. He continued to write obsessively by gas lamp, but there wasn't much time left. The American Philological Association's annual conference was coming soon. It was a huge event for professional linguists, and Edward wanted to present his manuscript there. He dreamed that he would dazzle the professors and sell his groundbreaking theory to an esteemed university for a small fortune, of course. If he could just finish his work in time, he would finally make his mark on the academic world. But fate would have different plans for all three of these criminals. Al Jarvis and Billy Dexter were counting on that money, and Edward Ruloff would go on to make his mark on the academic world but definitely not the one he expected. That year, Edward paid for advertising in New York City newspapers. The moment had arrived. He published a circular that made startling claims about the method in the formation of language. 
It promised a manuscript of peculiar interest, disclosing a beautiful and unsuspected method in language spoken and read by millions. He deserved to be paid for his work, he believed. So he offered it at the obscene price of $500,000. At the linguistics conference in Poughkeepsie, Edward dressed in a silly black frock coat and introduced himself as Professor E. Lorio, a pleasant academic. The other linguistics experts eyed him with suspicion. They had all read the circular, but it didn't matter if his theory was groundbreaking. Its half-a-million-dollar price was absolutely laughable. Experts from Vassar College and Brown University gave Edward a courteous and serious hearing. But ultimately, the panel was unimpressed with his haughty attitude. Edward listened to their unflattering critiques. The facade of country gentlemen abruptly ended. The committee chairman later said, The mild and gentle Mr. Lurio disappeared. In his place appeared the violent, abusive, and profane Mr. Lorio. Linguistics professor Michael Weiss says the committee had little choice. I think they were trying to avoid uh, any kind of, you know, direct confrontation with him. So, I mean, there were certainly people at the American Philological Association who would have been very well qualified. Edward later told Ham. The convention was a sort of heterogeneous lot of literary men, the most pedantic and self-assuming. Hamilton watched the killer's face contort into disgust and bitterness. But I was not discouraged, Edward told Ham. I was resolved to make the learned men of the world appreciate and acknowledge the merit of my method. And with that end in view, I returned to New York. He refused to abandon his theory. It was crucial to finish his manuscript now more than ever. And soon, three more people would die because of it. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked... He's ruthless enough to know, don't leave any witnesses. And look what happened. They didn't hang him. And he went on to kill kill someone else. Yes, The prison system is flawed because there are people that shouldn't be there that are and people that shouldn't get out that do. They would tell each other, he's trouble, watch him, he's he's not well. It's almost like PTSD for the entire community. If you love historical true crime, be sure to order my book, American Sherlock. It's about a real-life Sherlock Holmes who solved some of the most gruesome murders in the 1920s. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer, Eric Friend. Composer, Curtis Heath. Artwork, Nick Toga. Executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.